Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Well, uh, Mr. Pfeiffer. You've seen stories of magical worlds, <laughs> wicked witches, <clears throat> flying pirates, and dashing princes. But never has there been an adventure quite like this. Everyone's talking about a fallen star. When I find out the glory of our youth shall be restored. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pfeiffer Fridays, where we walk you through the films of one Michelle Pfeiffer and every F word automatically has a silent P. I'm Jerry Downey. And I'm Michael McLean. And today we are continuing with part three of our magical Michelle miniseries with 2007's Stardust, featuring Claire Danes, Charlie Cox, Robert De Niro, Rupert Everett, Ricky Gervais, Sienna Miller, Peter O'Toole, Ian McKellen, and of course, La Pfeiffer as Lamia. Michael, for the first time in a long time, this is a movie we have both seen before. Yes, that's right. Um, This was a really big favorite of mine back in middle school. Pretty sure this is when I, it might've been on the cusp of maybe the summer before I actually started high school, I think. Am I that much older than you? Because this came out the summer before I started college. You might be. Ugh, I'm ancient. You're one of you're one of Lamia's witches, <laughs> um, but yeah. So this was um, I saw this in theaters, and then uh, I remember reading the book afterwards. I had like the movie tie-in edition. Lovely. No, oh, probably got it from Borders. Don't you know? In Borders, of course. And yeah, I loved it. Um, and watching it now for this, I realized that this was my. Princess Bride, as it were, because I didn't grow up with Princess Bride. I think my dad tried to show it to me and I didn't really, didn't really gel with it until much older. But um, I feel like this was my Princess Bride. This was my fantasy movie. It was kind of this original IP. Just, I really loved and really loved the sensibility of it. And yeah, I've watched it so many times (laughs) since, since then, this is probably, 20, 30, I don't know how, what number this watch was. But yeah, how about you? So this was before college. Yeah, this, because this was in theaters August of 2007, and I started college, you know, last week of August 2007. And mm-hmm. I saw it in theaters too. And I just remember just falling in love with it automatically. It just, I think I was just in that headspace, like, terrified of going to college and leaving home and just that very vulnerable state so sitting in a dark movie theater and just having this gorgeous fairy tale wash over you was super comforting in in that moment and just it's that's why it's one of my comfort films now that I can just put on because it just sort of brings back this flood of happy happy feelings in in that moment but yeah, I, I just, I fell in love with it. And it's very special to me because this really was what sort of cemented 
my Michelle Pfeiffer love. Because mm -hmm. as we sort of talked about earlier, I didn't, you know, I couldn't see PG-13 until I was 13 and I couldn't see R until I was 17. So this probably, like aside from Prince of Egypt, was the first live action movie I saw of hers in a theater. And she's amazing in it. And so it that like I remember after seeing Stardust, that was when it kicked off for me. Any Michelle Pfeiffer movie coming out was a big fucking deal because I was just like, she is one of my people. <laughs> I I love her. Yeah, you had an amazing summer for Michelle because this was also the summer for Hairspray, wasn't it? Yeah. So I relate to you in that, um, you know, feeling really nervous about this big change you were about to undergo in your life because the summer before I started high school. And yeah, this came out in August. I was about to start high school. Yeah. Uh, my parents um, told me that they were going to move into a new house. They had bought a new property in a new subdivision. We were going to move. And so that happened right before I started my freshman year of high school. So I was completely thrown because I had this, you know, I was going into not only the new school, that change, but then moving to a new neighborhood, you know, moving into a new home. And I remember that and how comforting the book was to me, as well as the movie, but also the book, reading Neil Gaiman's words was really comforting to me in that moment too. And see, so I think I'm very similar to you where this, I put this movie on and I go immediately back to a really, I hate to say like scared, nervous Michael that's being comforted by this yeah. very well. And I'm like you, I read, I feel like this had to be my first introduction to Neil Gaiman as well. And I read, I read the book after seeing the movie too. And as much as I enjoyed the book, I think the movie actually really capitalized on the strengths of the book and the, the changes it made actually really strengthen it as a film property, yeah. which I, which I love. I remember the book being very faithful and really being a great um, standalone. They, they both complement each other very well. Yes. Definitely not one of these book to movie adaptations where the book is so much better. No, I was just going to say, I think just because of my love of, I mean, witches, but just female villainesses in general. Mm. I, I, Lamia is not a big character. She's not even named in the book. She's almost peripheral. Like she's a threat, but she's not the villain. Mm. And so I remember when I was reading the book after you know, just completely being enthralled by this character in the movie. I'm just like, um, uh, uh, where is she? <laughs> I, would, I would like to read more about her, please. Ah, oh, that's so funny. It's been so long since I've read that book. So that's such an, I wonder if I thought the same thing, because I'm sure, you know, I was not out yet, but I'm sure that, you know, the little game inside. That's your girl. <laughs> The little gamey inside said, I like her. Um, I think I was definitely in the, very much in the Claire Danes camp um, at that point in time. So loved her, loved Charlie Cox. That's a whole other, that's a whole other, the gamey inside also saw Charlie Cox, but for a very different reason than for Michelle Pfeiffer. The gay man inside you saw Charlie Cox inside you. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's okay. actually, you know, pretty much to the point. Um, yeah. But uh, 
I was making a point about Michelle Pfeiffer, but maybe I guess to say, you know, when I saw Michelle in this movie, I was like, oh my God. But um, yeah, because I think I'd just seen her in Hairspray earlier that summer. And then I had seen her in Batman Returns for that. But yeah, she was a force. I, I think I knew it as a kid. I was like, wow, she's fantastic in this. And she is one of my, I think it's maybe the reason why I rewatch it so often. I think it's probably because of her. Yes. No, she's, it's such an interesting performance because she's not, she's not chewing the scenery. Like she's not actively stealing scene. She's not showboating. But it's just such a perfect marriage of character and actress. And she's having such a blast getting to do what she wants with this that she's just she steals it she is she is what you leave this movie remembering because everything she does in it lands and even amidst all those um all that really fantastic makeup and prosthetics they put her in to really make her in this wonderful crone I think it's almost her ability to shine through that makeup I mean some of the images that stay with me so much in this movie are her in that full crone drag, you know, <laughs> because she looks quite terrifying and she and quite awful. So that alone is just how amazing they made her look so bad is amazing. But I think just some of her wickedness is what really sticks with me the most. So before we keep Explain, deep, deep diving into... <laughs> into this movie. Do you want to give a quick synopsis of Stardust? Sure. So I was trying, because the prologue of this movie is so, so much of what begins in this movie ends up paying off by the end. So you realize what, what this whole, what the setup becomes. So we have our main protagonist who is Tristan Thorne and he lives in, in England, in a village in England called Wall. And Wall has a, wall, hence its name, it has a wall down the middle, which in this wall separates England proper from this magical kingdom of Stormhold. And Tristan's father, what kind of starts this whole, what makes Tristan essentially, is his father sneaks into Stormhold um, one night just to see what's on the other side of this wall and comes upon this really magical, great magical carnival the street fair festival. And he um, meets uh, a princess who is enslaved by a witch named Ditchwater Sal. And so he, this princess seduces him. He has a great night in Stormhold. He goes back and nine months later, a baby ends up at um, Dunstan Thorne's doorstep, who is Tristan. 18 years later, Tristan is in love with Victoria, played by Sienna Miller, who is a very full of herself lady in this town. And he is just so smitten. He will do anything to get her hand in marriage. And one night there is a, um, a shooting star goes across the sky. And Victoria says, well, if, you're, if you wanna marry me, go get that star, sis, and I'll give you my hand in marriage. And Dresden says, okay. And so he goes off to, well, I guess, then there's the whole Babylon candle. Ugh. <laughs> you, you, 
you're allowing the synopsis to to really make you rage. Well, because because the way Tristan finds the star is through the use of a Babylon candle that his mother tucked into his basket. And this is a kind of a magical candle that allows you to travel. Um, basically think of a place you want to go and this candle will take you there. So that's how, it's a very important piece of magical property in this story. So he finds a star who has appeared in the form of Claire Danes and her name is Yvain. And so he is now going to, okay, lady, you're coming with me. You're the star. I'm going to take you back with me because you're going to be a gift to my beloved Victoria and if I have you, she will marry me. But she, Tristan is not the only one after the star. We also have Lamia, played by Miss, Miss Michelle, who is a bit, a bit of like a Sanderson sister trio of witches. Sorry for the reference, but- you know, Very that. Um, and they're very much, this, they're very much um, the Sanderson sisters. And you know, if you have, if you eat the heart of a star, you have eternal youth and beauty. So- she wants the star. Lamia goes out to get the star on behalf of her sisters. And then we have the King of Stormhold who is dying. The King of Stormhold has seven sons. So can you help me a bit on this part of the story with the King of Stormhold first? This is always the part that I'm like, ooh. So the King of Stormhold has seven sons and one daughter. Yes. And, you, and the crown goes down the bloodline by male heir. So the last male heir standing basically gets the crown. However, current King of Stormhold, Peter O'Toole, has four sons left. And he's certainly not going to pick a son. He's going to wait for them to kill each other. And last one standing gets his crown. But since he's about to die three seconds later and can't watch the fun, he says, here's this magic jewel, this ruby, that loses its color basically. And he says, okay, the one that finds the stone and turns it back into a ruby is the new king. Throws the stone up in the air, dies. The stone goes all the way up, smacks Claire Danes in the head, and is that's what brings her down to earth. And so now we have all these um, people. We, we have um, Mark Strong, um, um, Septimus, who eventually becomes the last... The last, the last man standing, standing um, who is um, in search of um, of the stone, and then also the star. Once he finds out, Evane is carrying the stone, and yeah, and then we have uh, Lamia trying every which way to entrap Evane, and then we have just poor Tristan just wanting to get back to the village of Wall so he can get married, and along the way, and of course, he falls in love with Evane, and they they have a beautiful. Um, camaraderie that builds up over the movie and um I think Tristan learns quite a lot over the course of this movie I mean one of the most important ones to me um you know why would Tristan why would you want to be in love with someone be associated with someone you don't even actually like namely Victoria why would you want to be with somebody who doesn't like you for you or who you don't like in general and like oh what a great lesson yeah, stop that great life lesson <laughs> and another favorite line of there, there are boys who work in shops, and then there are just boys who happen to work in shops for the time being. And Tristan, you're not a shop boy. He learns that he can want more for himself, and you know, and really, you know, 
just step outside the village of wall and discover what's out there. Well, and I like I like that last line you mentioned because that ties back to that picnic he has with Victoria, where he says, "I'm not a shop boy in, anymore." She's just like, "Oh, sure, Jan. Yes, you are." He's like, "No, really, I'm I'm not. I can do anything I want now." And then he meets this star that says exactly that back to him, and that's that's really when it starts clicking into place for both of them. It seems like. Oh, and we forgot about Robert De Niro. The whoopsie himself. The whoopsie himself. So yeah, so Robert De Niro is Captain Shakespeare, who is, um, I guess, a pirate up in the sky catching lightning. Because I guess it is a very valuable, valuable commodity on the black market. Some good old lightning strikes. What are some of your kind of Michelle thoughts, movie thoughts? Movie thoughts? And I can't have had this thought at the time because the show had not, or at least I had not seen the show by the time I watched the movie, but the, um, the direction and especially the, the prologue is so pushing daisies to me. Like you have just this beautiful narration by Ian McKellen happening and just those from the sky all the way down into the fair in Stormhold and then the big pullbacks over the map and just the saturated colors. It feels very Pushing Daisies-esque to me, which I really loved. Yeah, it's just pretty. It's a pretty, pretty movie. Mm -hmm. And there's so many shots that are just breathtaking, most of them involving Michelle. Mm -hmm. Like there's this a little section she has where she does not even say a damn word and it is one of the most striking visuals in the entire movie it's when she's on that mountainside tossing those runes up in in there and the smile she gives the way the wind is whipping her hair and her you know costume just blowing everywhere and her walking to that carriage doesn't say a word not Mm -hmm. one word and it is one of the best moments in the movie because you're just watching her like I I want to be that I want to be her yeah that's that's how I want to be photographed and that's how I want to be filmed I want to yes. have my mountain blowing I want to have my being on a mountaintop with wind blowing you know very important distinction <laughs> I, I think about that shot probably not every day but you know frequently on a regular basis regular basis because it is it's just stunning it is does it even fit what we're is it even fit the character does she should she even have this moment of glamour you know this moment of you know drama yes i i I say yes okay i i just i think it's some of her most it's one of those moments where you just see her reveling in the in the evil of this character, but in a completely silent way. And like Matthew Vaughn, you can just tell that he is so in love with shooting Michelle Pfeiffer and making her look incredible. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's that it's just that evil smile she gives before she turns around that just hits the nail on the head Mm -hmm. and it yeah it's it's just cool it's it's just a really incredible 30 second sequence that just 
just does so many things. She really gets, um, I think maybe two sequences, really big moments where she is the- The driver. The, the, the driver of the action of this. I'm thinking of the scene in the inn and then kind of the big climactic Hall of Mirrors sequence. Yeah. That to me, I always, there to me, I always think of those two moments, probably because of Michelle. It's just the incredible shot of her, maybe my favorite 30 seconds, although I love your 30 seconds too, is- um, Is it when she fixes her face and her boobs sag because of it? No, it's, it's in the inn. It's, um, it's when she's cornered Yvain and Tristan in the inn and they're surrounded them with fire, with the green fire. And she has her big old, her crazy knife and she's coming toward them. And she's just looking like the cat who got the cream. And Matthew Vaughn just kind of has her just before she even says her um, line as she's about to strike, he kind of holds on her for about five minutes as she's walking. That's one of my, besides the mountain scene, that's also one of my favorites of just, let's just look at her for a little bit. Oh yeah. Okay, Michelle, talk. <laughs> yeah. I. I still remember how hard I laughed in that moment when her when her tits sag because of her response. Like I even what is it fourteen years since this came out? I mm-hmm. that is still without a doubt the scene I remember first because of how hard I laughed at her reaction to you know she fixes some spot on her face the tits drop and she's just like, fuck. (laughs) She is so displeased. Mm -hmm. And I just, it was such an unexpected Mm -hmm. sight gag that it it works. It works really well because of how she sells it. It is funny that they have these moments of, that we get moments of levity with, with this witch character. I think, I guess we've gotten them always. I think maybe like with Hocus Pocus, we got them, but, um, it's just so funny to see somebody who is so wicked and so evil really have these flubs with, you know, each time she uses a piece, she uses her magic, she ages. She's saddled with her two witch friends who both despise her, but what can you do? They're in this together. And whenever she calls home with, with her ring, it's it's like she's calling home to the pit, like, <laughs> I fucked up. Like, can you come get me? <laughs> like, that's what it feels. I kind of love that they let her. I guess that maybe Neil Gaiman created this character that's so that this witch does stumble from time to time, and yeah, maybe that's why she's also it's such a great performance because there's that dimensions to her, because she's not just out there cackling on a mountain. She's uh, she's trying her best too, just like just like all these other characters to get this star. Yeah, no, she's got a lot. She's got a lot of levels mm-hmm. working, and there are some really brilliant little touches that she has, especially in her first scene. Mm-hmm. The little eyes she makes when she's cheating to pull out the the animal body part, so she can be the one to go get the star. Yeah. Then when she transforms and is just <laughs> drops her robe and is checking herself out in the mirror. It's it's gorgeous. She she looks phenomenal. And again, she's just 
the the joy she is experiencing in this performance is just glowing off that screen even more so than Claire Danes as an actual star. It's just kind of they just kind of enhance that glow. It, exactly. No, this is all Michelle Pfeiffer. And I think it kind of harkens back to what sort of a thing we were talking about in Baker Boys, that it really just, for the moments before she starts the aging process back again, it just sort of lets her be glamorous. Mm-hmm. And and a, this just movie star persona fits really well with this this witch character in those moments. And mm-hmm. again, just this perfect marriage between it. it it's very clear mm-hmm. that she was the only choice for Matthew Vaughn because even though it couldn't possibly have been written for her, it might as well have been. They have just tailored this so well to what she can do to make sure it is as perfect as it can be. And it makes so much sense that she would revel in being glamorous because when the character herself, she has, she's, uh, in, in fairy tale time, I'm sure she's been old for, well, wasn't it 400 years since they got the last star? You know, if you or I were old and decrepit for 400 years, you know, I'd probably want to, you know, whip my dress off too and check that out. Back there. <laughs> what See what we've got going on. She lets herself, she has the perfect excuse to just live it up because Lami is living it up too. I also... We have we have now reached the point where this is a British Michelle Pfeiffer that I can support. That's right. It is a it's it, it's it's the massage. It took me up until her first scene with Ditchwater Sal to even realize that she was doing British. It does it doesn't stand out. Yeah, like it does in in, in other movies. Um, it's. No, it is very much part of her character and it works in this world because everybody's doing it. God bless. Like, thank you for not having your British actors be British and your Americans be Americans. Thank you for just making sure everyone can do it and letting them do British. Yep. Hooray. But yeah, I loved that it took me three scenes of hers before I was just like, oh, oh, that's right. She's British in this. Mm-hmm. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Doing great. Yeah. Good job, girl. <laughs> well, it's that um, it's that really fabulous, you know, I seek a fallen star. When she has the limbus cross, you dare to give me limbus cross. <laughs> I love that scene. I love that scene. <laughs> the way she the way she's the way she realizes that she's under, she's like, I just said something I wasn't supposed to. What's happened to me? It couldn't be me under a spell, the mistress of all evil. (laughs) (laughs) Do we need to talk about other actors in this movie now? Or do we want to? I mean, we probably should. They they do exist. It's it's not just Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, Can we talk about Charlie Cox first? He's just so precious. Like he just, he just is. And one in one of the interviews, Matthew Vaughn did he said that he was very adamant about casting an unknown Mm -hmm. because apparently one of the ones the studios really wanted to push was Orlando Bloom which I mean fine like I can I can see that but it really 
he said he wanted an unknown because he really wanted someone that you could find believably dorky in the in the beginning when he's supposed to be that then sort of morphs into this gorgeous musketeer which, which is what he does mm-hmm. and orlando bloom was far too established at that point like you're you're not gonna buy him as some dweeb in the beginning because you know legolas is going to come pouring out of there at some point yeah and that's what charlie cox does like you totally believe he's this bowl cut lovelorn little puppy dog yeah in the beginning and then once he comes off captain shakespeare's ship looking fine mm-hmm. you you buy that too like it's i i love him i think he's a i think he's a perfect casting choice for this I think of when he gets off Captain Shakespeare's ship, he still feels like Tristan. Yes. There's not much really that's changed besides his out. I think there's definitely more of a swagger to him and definitely more of a confidence. I think he probably stands up a little straighter and you know holds himself differently. But underneath, he's still this, there's still the puppy dog there. I think that's really, that's really helpful. But the Captain Shakespeare ship is also where a lot of his confidence is built that's yeah. where that shop boy comment from a vein happens and mm-hmm. you know he gets the pretty clothes and the nice haircut and that's clearly where he's sort of realizing oh i think i like this girl and she may like me back in a in a real way instead of fucking sienna miller back in my village mm-hmm. and so it yeah you're right there's he's still the same person but I guess that's why I like Charlie Cox so much. He still he still shows that there's been a transformation internally. And I, I don't know how he manages that, but he does. And it and it plays. Yeah, he's was the perfect choice for this part. Um such a big crush for for me, for 14-year-old <laughs> Michael. Oh, oh, just loved. I wanted to, you know, in like a leveled out crater and like take me back to his village. Like I just wanted that so bad. I wanted to go on the adventure. Everybody was lusting after Orlando Bloom, but no, I wanted Charlie Cox. I think I'd be in that same camp. I liked Orlando Bloom just fine, but I, 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 I definitely had a crush on Charlie Cox after this movie. And yeah, then we have titular star herself, Claire Danes. And I think we've made our feelings known on Claire Danes a while back. Back in episode four. Yes. Um, I like her in this movie. Um, she, Michelle just kind of keeps peeking and peeking in this movie for me. And Claire Danes just kind of is in the middle. So. Not only in the middle, but according to your hand, goes nowhere. <laughs> yeah, just to me, I'm like, okay. I do not like Claire Danes. But this is one of the few performances of Claire Danes that I actually do like. What is it that you like about her in this one? I was looking at the some of the actresses that they pitched as possible Evans, and apparently one of the actual offers went to Sarah Michelle Gellar, who I do like. Yeah, but I think Sarah Michelle Gellar is a very contemporary actress in in all the best ways. Trying to picture her in a fairy tale setting is difficult for me. Even on Buffy, she's still a modern. She's Correct. still a modern girl. Yeah. And so I think Claire Danes really does work in this fairy tale sensibility in this world. 
And I like that she plays Evane as a mature woman. I think it would have been very easy, this pretty blonde star to play her as a girl. Yeah. Uh-huh. And there's n- nothing like that. And there's really none of her, you know, on the verge of tears scrunch face going on this entire movie, which is why I can't watch Claire Danes because I can't watch her face. Uh, it's a very different performance from what I'm used to for her. And she's making very interesting choices that really work to make what is essentially an inanimate object, an actual human being. And so I, even if it's a performance I like versus a performance I love like Michelle or Charlie Cox, it's still very much of this world and she's doing a good job. So I, I do like her in this movie. That is so fantastic that you brought up that she plays her as a mature woman because can you imagine if, you know, this star comes down and it's a, I can't think of a whole other way that could have been played. You know, somebody who's, I've never seen Earth before. <laughs> maybe, almost maybe like if, like if Giselle from Enchanted came down from the sky. Yeah, exactly. But no, I like that Claire took the notion that this is somebody who has been in celestial form for however many years right she's probably just as old as lamia is yeah so that's such a smart choice i don't know whose part it was but such a smart choice to be like no this is someone who's been around and has seen so much of the world since then so of course you are not going to be someone fresh-faced and new at this yeah Um, and she's not going to put up with a man's bullshit so it's really quite lovely to see her fall in love with Tristan because it's probably the last thing Yvain expected when she fell out of the sky and probably the very final yeah probably was the last thing on her list of things to do that day and yeah I think my favorite scene of hers is when she's talking to Tristan when he's been turned into a little mouse and she has her really nice speech she does a really lovely job with that I actually I think my favorite moment of hers may may very well be her introduction when Tristan first yeah. knocks her over because yeah. she is pissed. She doesn't want to be here. She doesn't like you running into her. She doesn't like you calling her mom and she's going to let you know about it. She wants to go back up in the sky. Thank right. you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, there's just, there's a very, kind of like you said, I, I will not tolerate bullshit attitude she she brings to it, which, again, is just a very interesting choice that really kicks it off in the right way. And I, I, I very much appreciate that. There are a couple of details that I really enjoyed that I noted about, that I'd forgotten about this time, funny enough, um, how, how many times I've seen this movie, is the little flower, the little glass flower. I forgot that that was such a, that was his little protection because it explains so much how they got out of their scrapes so often, you know, that he would always have that flower on him. And I didn't even, I think I noticed it maybe like, um, I forget when I really, it was towards the end of the movie, like the last like hour, I was like, oh yeah. Is, it, flower, when, is it in what... the final sequence where she tries to, because even when Ditchwater Sal takes it from him and it was just like, yeah, that could have saved you right now before she turns him into a mouse. It makes sense, but it 
it, it's much more when Lamia tries to mm-hmm. ob- obliterate him and can't do it mm-hmm. that it's just like, oh no, that that really is they cannot touch him if this is on his person sort of thing. Yeah, I think it even probably saves them from the. I think it does when when the mirrors shatter all around them. It keeps them from being grievously harmed by flying glass. I I remembered in the in the beginning when she says, you know, when the very in the prologue when um Una gives Dunstan Thorn the flower. I think she even says it's for your protection. It'll protect you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I of course I saw that part this time, but then I was like, oh wait, 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 wait. Yes, that flower. That is such an important thing. And I can't believe I've never really remembered it in all the times I've watched this movie. Another, it's another Michelle detail um, that really goes into her, what a blast she's having in this. As she's aging and as she gets closer and closer to having a vein in her clutches, I don't know if you felt this, but she almost gets, she gets so gravelly and gets really kind of, really primal almost, almost it's lascivious. It's, um, almost like I've been hungry for 500 days and my meal is in sight. And I just, I'm just, please give this meal to me. Like I am just ready for it. It's that really, really specific type of hunger pangs. I love that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love that it's so fun watching her move even when the focus isn't on her like there's several shots at the tail end when you know she's 500 years old Mm -hmm. at at this point and just the way she carries herself like up the staircase Mm -hmm. she carries that weight on her body it's it's not just the the makeup and the hair even though that does a a damn good job like she she does a lot of work to show this woman aging and it it pays off and it's real it's really fun to to watch her just go at it it feels like it's probably intentional on the costumer's design but as she's hunched over the back of her corset is kind of split Mm -hmm. it's not really there's like this little kind of opening like well of course because the dress is stretching over probably her hump on her back her 500 year old hump so that's another detail that i'm like go off stardust because yeah, even as she ages her clothes age with her yeah. which which is just a phenomenal little detail on the designer's part yeah and 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 just the the idea i i yeah i think neil gaiman came, i remind me of neil gaiman came up with this part of, but the ghosts of the brothers all showing up and following along in the story i can't remember if that's part of the book it's it's just been too long but I, they're just, they're funny. They are so funny. It's the, it's the stupidest Greek chorus you can imagine watching those brothers try to narrate and comment on what's going on. But it, it lands. It's, <laughs> it's, it, it's, what, oh. Oh, it's when Primus is in the bath at the inn talking to a vein and all the ghost brothers are just like it's the stone she's got the stone do you see the stone <laughs> he finally says something about let me see that necklace and they're like finally great <laughs> mm-hmm. and then when unfortunately 
Primus is slaughtered by Lamia. They're just, hey, and welcome to the club. And uh, he, it's blue blood because he's a royal. It is blue blood. Another little detail concerning the brothers. Did you notice that at the end, one of them goes to hell? No. no. Okay. I don't, I don't know why I saw it this time. But when all of them, like when the ruby turns and all of them sort of turn into light and go, one of them, and I'm pretty sure it's Septimus, turned red and went the opposite direction. And I'm just like, oh, that, that's cute. <laughs> I like that. I've got to go back on Netflix and rewind it. Details. And something I had never noticed before until, it must have been an IMDb trivia, is all the brothers, because the brothers are named for the order they were born. So mm-hmm. you've got Primus, Secundus, Tertius, so on and so forth to the seventh. Mm-hmm. And all of them have little things designed into their clothing that are their numbers. So like Septimus, the buttons on his tunic are sevens. <sighs> and it's finding things out like this where I'm just like, how was this not nominated for any Oscar? Not one. Yeah. I don't understand. It's def- This is definitely feels like it has, you know, the people who love it. I feel like it has definitely, it's found its home in the people who love it like us. But yeah, it's a shame that it, it feels like it was really, if I'm, it feels like it was being marketed down as well as it could have been. But yeah, it's a shame that it just flew under the radar because absolutely like production design that the witch's lair alone is, you know, enough to, for me to take a second look, much, you know, much less the costumes. The, the makeup they do from Michelle alone. Yeah. Even, even with only three nominees in the, in the makeup and hairstyling category, it's just like, did you, did you just not see this movie? That's what, to me, it seems. They just didn't see it. Yeah. It's just, there are so many, and all, all this to say, 2007 was a badass year for film. Mm-hmm. That it, it, it just was. There, there are strong films that were nominated and unnoticed across the board. It was just, it was a watershed year for amazing movies. But it also, like, it feels, at least as far as the acting awards are concerned, the wealth was very spread out. So a lot of movies were, mm-hmm. were seen and recognized. And so I think that's why for me, I'm just like, this wealth was, you know, thrown to this corner and that corner. It's just like, you couldn't have even given Stardust one, just something. I should have looked at all the nominees. I really only looked at the ones that I thought this, you know, should have been in contention for. And one thing that really seems to be missing on a lot of fronts is fantasy, which I expected if Stardust got snubbed that there would be another fantasy to take its place because it feels like if you do a fantasy film or you do a period, you know, royalty film, those are the ones that even if they just get a lone nomination are going to get production designer costumes. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was looking and... No, because costumes, it was Elizabeth the Golden Age, which there, there you go with your period royalty, mm-hmm. across the universe, why? Atonement, Obby. cool, awesome, 
Bavian Rose, again, good choice. And Sweeney Todd, which I have no problem with. Yeah, the Across the Universe one, you know, great. You went to, you found some prairie skirts and you found some hippie clothes. Like, that's not really. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of feels like on a certain level, maybe Sweeney took the the quote unquote fantasy slot because it's it's a yeah. burden it's a heightened sort of sensibility, mm-hmm. but even makeup the three nominees it was La Vie en Rose the third Pirates of the Caribbean and fucking Norbit I question these choices <laughs> even like with now La Vie en Rose okay sure but yeah we could have easily put in a fourth nominee there. And even I'm looking in art direction, you know, Sweeney Todd was the winner there, which great. Yes. American gangster, you know, kind of a period gangster. I feel like that's a period gangster. I feel like American gangster is 80s. Kind of period. It's it's contemporary. It's not, we're not going back to, you know, 30s and 40s. Yeah. American gangster, atonement, there will be blood. And then the fantasy film there was The Golden Compass, which oh. to me is a little, I'm like, scooch that one out of the way and just put in Stardust because Stardust is the better movie. Yeah. And and I think the better design, the more memorable design. Yeah. So very, there, there, was, there, were, there were places there to put it. And definitely nominees that you can definitely move out of the way there or just make room for it. Six nominees. Yeah. <laughs> so I ordered. Care. I don't care. Like, just... <laughs> I guess, is it even worth looking at supporting actress? Did it feel like there was it any is... chance there? No. no. No chance. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the Saturn Awards. Mm-hmm. She lost to Miss Marcia Gay for The Mist. But, I mean, Supporting Actress... Which, unfortunately, like like we say with quite a few with Michelle, was locked. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had Amy Ryan for Gone Baby Gone, mm-hmm. who was sort of the, the critic's darling of that year. And she was nominated across the board. Kate Blanchett for I'm Not There in mm-hmm. her Bob Dylan drag won the Globe. Again, nominated across the board. You've got Sersha who was just happy to be there. She didn't win anything, but she did get nominated across the board. And then you've got our Oscar winner, Tilda, for Michael Clayton, Mm -hmm. uh, who also picked up the BAFTA. And then at the Globes, your fifth is Julia Roberts for Charlie Wilson's War. But then going to the SAG, you've got Ruby Dee, who wound up winning it, and she was our fifth at the Oscar. And that's why I love the 2007 acting race. It's one of my favorite races with one of the most deserving winners because Tilda is phenomenal in Michael Clayton. But you went into that award ceremony wondering who, I know it's not going to be Saoirse Ronan, but who the, who the fuck, who is it going to be? And I love, I love that. Like, I don't, I don't think we've maybe best actress for this year is, is this past year is similar. Yeah. But it's, it's so few and far between when lately it feels like we just don't have a steamroll yeah. occur. And that's just so dull. 
I think that's why this year was so exciting because you had so many incredible films, performances. I think I'm looking at the lineup. I think, again, we'd love to see it when you go into the evening, pretty much knowing your locks for best actor and best supporting actor. And then it's so up in the air for best actress and best supporting actress. Yeah, because you had sort of, I feel like you had a dark horse in Elliot Page for Juno, Mm -hmm. just because of how well received that was. Mm -hmm. And then you've just got this complete coin toss between Julie Christie for Away From Her and Marion for La Vian Rose. Mm I would have given it to Mar- to Marion. She she was I was in her court too. I watched away from her last year and Julie is the best part of that movie, but I would have definitely maybe swung more towards Marion. Laura Lenny's phenomenal in the savages. What a random. But yeah. great, great, but you know what a <laughs> And I mean I my my love for Kate Blanchett knows no bounds. I would not have nominated her for either of these performances this year. Okay. I've actually, I've seen Elizabeth the Golden Age. I, I, it's not really nomination worthy for me either. I can't get through. I'm not there. I've tried a couple times, but I just can't really get through it. So I, I can't really. Uh, I, got, I got through it. I was not happy when it was over. Oh, poor Jerry. I, and that's one of those things that I, you know, I do think that that is a very solid lineup of, of five, despite my feelings about I'm not there. I think I would put, uh, uh, if I just added Michelle as a wild card sixth and kept those five, she'd be my second or third. Mm-hmm. I'd still have Tilda winning and I'm not moving Amy Ryan anywhere because I think she's incredible and gone baby gone. Mm-hmm. But Michelle would either be my second place or third after those two. And yeah, even on my even on my ranking of Michelle's performances, this is pretty. I was toying. I'm like, it feels weird to put her put this in my top ten because it means I'm moving other. So right now, I think I have her like at number like twelve, thirteen. But I was really thinking, I was like, I could easily put her higher. But it just feels weird to, at least in my personal ranking, to move her some of her earlier work, more maybe more lauded work, down. But I think this one just, just, it means a lot to me. And this really was her returning. Sure was. I mean, this, this was a five-year break between live action, because you have Sinbad in 03, but this is, I think I, I Could Never Be Your Woman was the first 07 release, just chronologically, but no one really saw that movie. So really, this is like your first big screen Michelle Pfeiffer movie since Oleander. Yeah. I think that's, I, I think that's why it's such a dazzling performance because I, I sent you that, that interview with, with Matthew Vaughn and even she is very candid about the fact that, you know, she, she was kind of enjoying her break and then she got this gig and it was one of the hardest experiences she's had in terms of filming a movie but she said it completely revitalized her joy of acting and you you feel that in in what she's doing and I think that's why it's so high up in my ranking is is because it's just again there have been performances of hers I've loved but you don't see any work from her here 
like I, I this is my third time saying it it is just the perfect marriage of character and actress and you you feel that the entire time you're watching the movie yeah I think the meaning of this especially after reading that article you sent me really made it I think even higher in my estimation knowing what this meant for her in her at the moment in her career to bring her back to the screen after so long and yeah and what it and what doing the film meant. Yeah, it's it was very moving to read. If, and I was so surprised to feel that way about this movie. I was like, oh, I didn't expect it to take on even a more deeper meaning for this product that we're doing and for my appreciation of her in general. But yeah, really, really powerful that it, yeah, just to think this, that this just brought back her joy of the craft again. That's so meaningful. I don't, yeah, I, I think that, I think that's something you feel from it because I'm I'm sure if I'm sure if it was some you know deep dark drama sort of sort of like a white Olander you'd probably get just another brilliant psychological performance from her but I think that would have been difficult in an entirely different way and this you know you you don't even necessarily have to focus on being human playing a character like this you just get to sort of like you said tap into this primal wickedness and love it and and just just have fun and that yeah sometimes that just lights your fuse your fuse again when you're able to play and it's and it's not work yeah this doesn't feel like you know another day on set oh yeah henry cavill's in this did you mention that in the beginning baby henry cavill baby henry cavill pre-suit pre pre anything is this because this would have even been pre-tutors right Either pre tutor because he came on in the tutors mid mid series. Was he at the very beginning of the tutors? Yeah, he was a big reason why I started watching the tutors. But I, I mean, maybe this was the same time because I was watching the tutors in college. So maybe this, maybe okay. it was a two thousand seven start as well. But yeah, <laughs> you'd never know it with that blonde mop and that mustache. <laughs> yeah, you. I mean, it's just it's the most unassuming characters. You're just like really you would be forgiven if you're just if you didn't even clock him yeah <laughs> um, but I just think it's so funny that he's in it and he gets a little a wink from Mr. Bobby D at the very end oh Bobby D we haven't really gone gone in on that have we no I, I you know it's is it I think somebody said on Letterboxd it's one it's one hand swish away from a caricature but you know it's it's one of those things where no matter how many times I watch it, it just never feels offensive. If no. that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Never does. It's, it's certainly over the top, yeah. but it's almost, it's almost just like, what a damn good sport. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think I feel that way because it never feels offensive to me. It, it, he's playing the words that are there without just making it a very offensive stereotype he's got a little swish in that swagger and he doesn't need to push it any further than that because i think if we asked robert de niro to go that go further it would not would not work at all right and it's and it it just i think he goes just far enough to make the joke funny because mm-hmm. you start off with you know the the Robert De Niro we all know and love being just this badass kicking ass and taking names pirate and so then when the 
switch is flipped and he's this fey fashion forward <laughs> idiot. He he plays it just just enough to where it stays funny. I you so you when you said he's such a fey idiot, I was like, yeah, he can't even steer his own ship. And I love I it's never it's never exactly explicitly said. But I think the way his crew talks to him is kind of the way that Evane talks to Tristan. There's a lot of accepting yourself in this movie. That's sort of an underlying message for a lot of characters is being different is okay. Like find the people that love you for it. Find your circle. That's that's fine. We accept you. And that's, again, it's never explicitly stated, but the way certain characters talk to other ones, it's it's very much a, a thread that's there which is probably why Lamy is the villain because she's fighting with all her might to not be 500 years old she she will not accept that no that that's a difference that we will not be accepting on today she's like accepting yourself not today satan oh there's like a little witches of eastwick throwback with the mark strong voodoo doll thank yeah. god we watched that before this because now i can be Suki got her groove back. Honestly, we should use that in some. We got to remember that, how Suki got her groove back. <laughs> the, how we, 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 When it comes time to do the social media push for Stardust, how Suki got her groove back. I There were just, there were some lines of dialogue from certain characters that I really enjoy. Like my favorite Evane line was at, at the top when she says, nothing says romance like a kidnapped injured woman. I love that Michelle's innkeeper voice is about seven octaves higher than her real Lamia voice. And when she lays a vein down for the massage, she kicks it off with, now I'm just a simple innkeeper's wife. <laughs> and for some reason, that line really tickled me tonight. It's very much just like all you housewives and mothers out there. It's exactly that. It's Fistrata. Yes. <laughs> And then the last line I wrote down was, was a Captain Shakespeare just to come full circle on that, which was, honey, you're wearing a bathrobe. There are you. There are some, there are some, some Captain Shakespeare moments where I'm like, that's not Jerry. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I accept that. Good. The other was Mark Strong walking in on Robert De Niro. What the hell is this? <laughs> That is the one scene that is that is a good sports scene for Bobby De Niro because we've never seen him like that. Okay, I'm sorry. Any any movie post like Moulin Rouge, so post 01, if you hear the can can music starting up, buckle up <laughs> because something something is about to occur. Ugh. I mean, that seems like the only time in the movie that Bobby's like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe he got me to do this. I, the way he flaps that fan, again, it's kind of like watching Michelle do some things. You can tell that they have just said, we're going to hand you some dresses and we're going to hand you a pretty fan. And buddy, you are off the leash. Mm -hmm. You do whatever you feel like, and we're going to get it on film. And I think that's, that's why it works so damn well is because it's just, it's just them having fun. Coppola would never. Going back to Marty after this one. (laughs) I'm gonna call, I gotta call Marty. He's in his little chair on set, like typing, typing a text to Marty. Yeah, that's Stardust. That's Stardust. Oh, I recommend it so much. I hope, oh, 
please watch it. Yes, dear God, if, if you have not seen this, watch it, please. Hopefully we made it sound appealing. I mean, we gave it all away anyway, but you know. Say, if, if we weren't emphatic enough, we do enjoy this movie. But yes, is it time for Six Degrees? I believe it is. So, uh, dear listeners, if this is your first time joining us, we end every episode with a little game we call Six Degrees of Michelle Pfeiffer. And the way we play is we give each other an actor or actress, and the other person has to connect it to Michelle Pfeiffer via other actors and actresses in Six Degrees or less. Michael, would you like to give or receive first? Um, I will receive first. Okay. So I wrote down four witches. So choose a number between one and four. Three. Okay. So my witch for you is uh, the current Aunt Zelda on Sabrina, Miss Miranda Otto. Okay. Oh, it's... Because I guess I'm going with Lord of the Rings because that's kind of... I mean, where, where else do you start at the very least? Um, uh, let's see. But there's so many people in those movies where it's like, I see the roads laid out before me. Because um, <laughs> we ban dark shadows. We're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not going down this cast of dark shadows. We've got to go somewhere we, else. We didn't ban dark shadows. We banned Helena Bonham Carter. I am. Yeah. But I want to see if I can maybe go a little... <laughs> If I can do better. I'm choosing to challenge myself today. Leave I'm me alone. I'm choosing to challenge myself and give myself a, um, like I'm thinking of like Vigo and um, I'm thinking what else has Liv Tyler done besides? Oh, Liv, Liv is the wrong direction to go. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. So So Michelle Pfeiffer is in The Age of Innocence with Winona Ryder, who is in Little Women with Gabriel Byrne, who is in Hereditary with Anne Dowd, who is in Captain Fantastic with Viggo Mortensen, who is in Lord of the Rings Return of the King with Miranda Otto. That was such a long fucking way to get there. But but you got there. got there. I'm proud of you with no okay I, I am proud of you because you got there with no Johnny Depp well because I I just didn't want to go there I was like I can do I can find a different way but I did I thought of Johnny Depp yeah I was yeah like because he's in she's in Lord of the Rings with Lena Bloom who's in Pirates with Johnny who's in Dark Shadows with <laughs> I can do better than this you watch me I'm gonna throw Anne Dowd in there <laughs> I can do better than Johnny Depp Okay, so mine for you is um, Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland. Are we going old school or are we going... Okay, we're, we're not going old school. So Michelle is in Mother with Jennifer Lawrence, mm-hmm. who is Katniss Everdeen opposite Donald Sutherland's President Snow in The Hunger Games. There we go. So mom thought of Donald Sutherland. This was her contribution to Six Degrees today. Aww. Because I was explaining to Natasha um, what the game was that we play. And she said, okay, well, I'll think of something. I'll think of one for you, Michael. Um, <laughs> do, do we connect it the same way? 
Um, no, I, I took a much longer, I forgot about the Hunger Games. I forget. Um, Many people have. You know, it had its day. It's no stardust, ladies and gentlemen. No, it's no stardust. All right, Pfeiffer fans, this has been another episode of Pfeiffer Fridays. I'm Jerry Downey, and you can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at jerrydowney913. And I'm Michael McLean, and you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Michael D. McLean. You can find updates about the podcast by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Pfeiffer Fridays. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever subscription channel is your favorite. It makes us easier to find so we can continue to spread the Michelle gospel to one and all. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you again next week for Bye for Fridays. Momo! Computer, wake up! No! What is it? A star has fallen. Where are the Babylon candles? You used the last one, Lamia, 200 years ago. Do you not recall? Perhaps we can obtain another. Has your mind become as decrepit as your face, Impusa? You speak as if such things are freely available. I know, sister. I merely you thought- hunting for a Babylon candle while some other witch finds our star. Fool. There's no time to waste. If we must retrieve it on foot, then we shall. Mormo, we need information.